All right, all right, here we are. We're here, man. Happy New Year. Wow, you too. We are uh, January 4th, uh, brought to you by Tech GC, the fine folks and the international producer of mystery, Chris Sands. <laughs> As you can hear yeah. by my horrible laugh, I am sick with the flu and my team at You're work is sick. decimated, even though we're all remote. I think we just got to get used to COVID and flu hyperactivity in January from now on. I think right. that's for a bit. So you're sick, but is that a bottle of liquor behind you? It looks the, like oh, the whiskey? Buffalo Trace back there. That yeah, whiskey, that's always whiskey. there, man. <laughs> yeah, this is a Buffalo. I keep a I keep a bottle of Buffalo Trace in my office. Mm. You can tell mm. I don't drink much, but like, it looks here. delicious. It looks delicious. Look, man. Sometimes when some crazy news story breaks at 9 p.m. and I'm still sitting at my desk, it's like you know what, man. Let, let me just let me let the Buffalo <laughs> Trace lubricate. This <laughs> <way>. <laughs> let me let the Buffalo out. Yeah, you see what I got back there too? I got the new uh, MetaQuest Pro sitting back there. Ooh, the box. Ooh. I'm really pumped about it, man. Like the experience of wearing it is I have a Quest uh two, like the the like the MetaQuest two, I guess, which is the one that everyone's familiar with, and then this is the new one. Um, dude, like wearing it on your head is a completely different experience. It's pretty fancy feeling. And I, I think like the business applications of this device are going to be super cool. So I'm pumped. I'm not just like plugging Meta here. No, isn't that where it's going to land about first? The device. Cool. Isn't huh? that where it's going to land? If that's where it's going to land first, right? It's going to land first in companies that are seeing productivity around like virtual calls that make those virtual calls, you know, more, more human, right? I think so, man. And I look I, like when there's some cool YouTube videos out there right now, but like if you could. I, I'm, I'm hopeful. And again, this is just me talking. I like, I'm hopeful for a future not so far away where I can get rid of this desk in this office and just put my, my, my headset on or some version of that that still lets me be in this environment. Um, but projects these three monitors I have on my screen here uh, in a virtual way. So, and so I can control them and command and control center them that way. Like, just imagine if like I could build a NASA operating center, like in my office. You know, I could have Twitter on one end and like Instagram on the other end and then you here and then two other screens, one with my calendar and one with my chat message. And like I can toggle between all of these things. That sounds like super sci fi. Dude, I'm telling you, you can do it on the MetaQuest Pro right now. And so, um, you know, the, the issue is just like, how do we do it in ways that like are more reliable and just, just create more efficiency? That application alone, I love, man. And so not to mention all the other cool stuff. So I'm pumped about it. Man. I don't Twitter will be out of business by the time that happens. Dude, I'm, sure. I'm really worried about Twitter, man. And and what I mean by that is like, obviously my friends that still work there, however few are left, but like, you know, Twitter is like sort of like an interesting place because like it, it has served as the like idea town square for some time. Yeah. Now it's just not safe. It's not safe to go there. And, and and this isn't a, a referendum on Elon Musk. Like I don't want to go to a space full of racial epithets and 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 toxicity. And that's what I see there now that I I had never seen before. Well, it was there. I'm seeing it at a scale now that I'd never seen before, which is you know, my personal experience has diminished quite a bit on Twitter. I don't I'm not interested in in being in that space very much. Yeah, it's it's not a friendly place right now. Yeah, it's become a really hostile place. I mean, a lot of, social media generally tends to ha like bring out sometimes like not the best in people. I mean, obviously, I work at a social media company, um, but like this is it, the the scale of all of this is 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 hard to process. 
Yeah, I got off Twitter and there have been plenty of times though when I've thought to myself I'd really like to be looking on Twitter right now. Like yeah. an yeah, example too, man. An example is in Monday night football, as you as somebody some people may know, some like this player in the Bills was like seriously injured. And so on Twitter is a place where you could go to find out if he was okay. Yeah. And and that's where like his news outlets are slow on that stuff and um so I don't know. News applications are, are, are lagging, but the it's not a good place right now. So I, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I think the player you're talking about is Demar Hamlin, and like, yeah. you know, peace to him and his family. And I, right. I, I'm hopeful of of a quick recovery for him. He seemed like a really pleasant young man who was um uh, on his way to some great things, and hopefully he can get, he can get back to it at some point. Um, so best wishes to him. But I I agree that Twitter kind of served as like a fast food version of news, right? I yes. Yeah. I think Instagram plays that role for me pretty, pretty strong. And, you know, like Instagram is really, like my, at least my feed is pretty good about delivering like, or like real time news in a way mm. that Twitter is expert at. But like my algorithm is for, you know, like I saw all the Hamlin news on Instagram before I saw it even on TV. I don't wow. watch, I don't watch football anymore because of my Instagram like feed is purely food cooking videos. Well, that's because that's who you that's follow, it. man. That's it. <laughs> mine is mine is mostly like stuff about MF Doom, who's a rapper I yeah. love very much. Um, uh, like sort of like Latino black cultural news, uh, because of the accounts I follow, and then just like kind of raw news, um, and because of the accounts I follow, mm. and so my feed blows up when something significant happens at just the right level. I'm, I'm a fan. And again, I think that's because of years of curating my Instagram feed. As you know, yeah. because I DM you like lots of wacky reels, it's also full of really strange things. Yeah, that's what's the beauty of it. That's the beauty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I tell you what it's not full of now that I think Twitter is, is like I went on Twitter right after this whole thing happened and I had never seen more racism in one place ever. Like it was, it was out gross. of control. Really? And it, 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 Twitter wasn't always like that. There's racists everywhere. But Twitter yeah. was not always like that. And like, um, I don't know, man. Hopefully, it's, hopefully we figure this thing out. Yeah. So on on a lighter note, uh, we have an awesome guest, our GC, GC Shirley <laughs> Paley from uh, from Form Labs. Yeah. I mean, dude, 3D uh, printing. She she works yeah. at a cool 3D printing company, and um, you know, 3D printers. I think still has 3D printing still has a lot of promise and a lot of like uncharted territory. Um, I'm not an expert by any means, but. But I do remember it, and I know we talked with her about it, but like I remember the hype a few years ago of 3D printing, yeah. and it's 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 maybe not at the forefront of the news cycles or the media cycles right now, um, but it sounds like it's still chugging along, and especially like in industrial medical applications, it's yeah. thriving, so super exciting. It's an interesting one. It's actually doing really well, and it's not an area where people like know a lot because I think we, we raised this in the conversation with her. It's not like you have a 3d printer in your home yet. Although I do know somebody that has one and he's like an engineer and he tinkers and he makes stuff with it, but like, it's not, it's, it's really like large scale industrial uses and it's being used to formulate parts, you know, and that's yeah. as unsexy as that is, it's a huge business. And so like, um, it's definitely taken off and there are definitely several companies, hers included that are, are leading. So, yeah, I'm excited that like I, I'm I'm excited to share our conversation with Shirley with the world. I think it's just like it's an interesting area that you're right doesn't get a lot of fanfare all of a sudden, 
but it's still moving in a direction of like rapid innovation and application. So it's just interesting stuff, man. All right. We're here to hype it. Here it is. Let's hype it up. Shirley, thanks for joining us. Our guest is uh, Shirley Paley. He's a GC at Formlabs, a 3D printing company, which is really interesting. And I want to get into that. Um, but I also want to talk about some of the stuff in your career and the the a lot of um, really interesting stuff that we really haven't dug into with other guests before. So I'm interested to to talk about it. So I guess my first question is like going way back growing up, did you want to be a lawyer? Did you want to be a GC? Was that something on your mind at all? Uh, no. So I grew up, um, um, I, you can hear from my accent, I did not grow up in Boston, uh, where I live. Um, I grew up, I was born in Israel, and then I moved to South Africa when I was nine. Um, and in both of those places, um, you had to figure out what you wanted to be when you grew up, when you graduated from high school and started university, like you went straight to medical school, straight to law school, straight to become an accountant or whatever. And those were kind of engineer. My mother's a doctor. My father's an engineer. It was those kind of professional things um, that were open to me and that I was so that I thought about. Um, and um, but what I wanted to be was a child psychologist. Um, and um so in South Africa, getting a BA in psychology was not what like the smart kids did. It wasn't hard to get into the state school to get a BA psychology. Um, and so people kept saying to me, well, that, that seems like such a waste. Like, why would you do that? That seems like such a waste. And that was very upsetting to me. Um, I had the opportunity to come to the States to go to college uh, where um, it just felt like the world was my oyster. I didn't need to decide what I wanted to be when I grew up and I could get a BA and major in psychology and that was would that be something, okay. Surely, um, was that something and like that a, was one of the, sorry, was that something a lot of your friends were doing going to college in the States or was that an aberration? No, none of my friends were doing it. Um, my mom had was, is a very well-read person and, um, she had this very romantic, um, notion of college in the U.S. from the books that she'd read. And she said to me, maybe you should do that. And, um, you know, as a 15-year-old, I said, that's that's a terrible idea. I have all my friends. I've got my boyfriend. Life is good. I'm just going to do do the thing in South Africa. Um, but between people saying to me that a BA psych, I would be a waste, it would be a waste for me to do BA psych. And um, the crime in South Africa and then being very directly affected by the crime. Um, I, we rented a house for a summer vacation and it was robbed with me in it both oh. times, like a week apart. Um, and so that was a very upsetting and traumatic moment in my life. And so coming to college in the U S just felt like a great trap door. I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to, get out of here by doing that. That was the summer between before my senior year of high school. And so that's when I decided to take the SATs um, and apply to some schools in the US, really not knowing very much about any of them, but just kind of. So when you land here, what's it like? How does it feel? So I was actually lucky enough to come visit the schools after I got in. Um, so I had a little bit of an idea um, of what I was getting into, but um, 
I went to Dartmouth College and um, it was uh, in some ways a very comfortable experience, right? I am an English speaker. Um, I grew up watching American sitcoms and American movies. Um, I grew up very comfortably in a suburb of Johannesburg, so it, it didn't seem that foreign. Um, but I also felt like I was living in a movie um, and in, in several TV shows. So um, I remember my first football game. I couldn't believe that they were actual real cheerleaders. Like I was like, oh, they actually do that. And they actually have pom-poms. Like I just thought that was like a thing for the movies. Like no one would really do that in real life. And there were a bunch of experiences like that where I understood what it meant, but I couldn't believe that it happened. When you zoom life. out, when um, you zoom out on cheerleaders, uh, like on the idea of cheerleaders and pom-poms, it's ludicrous. So I, I get it. Uh, when yeah. you zoom in on it, it's pretty ludicrous too. Yeah. yeah. It just feels um, a little dated to me, but hey, you yeah. know, I, I, I don't, I'm not an expert, but. I also, um, you know, the I came from South Africa in, um, I started college in 1994. So a pivotal moment in South African history, um, right at the tail end, like right when apartheid ended. Um, and coming to an environment that was, I know now, completely imperfect um, in its integration, but an environment that was integrated um, was such an eye-opening experience. It wasn't anything I was averse to, like I was looking forward to it, but just living in it um, was just really interesting. Like I just looked at it with such curiosity. I was like, look at this, like, black students in the classroom with me, like my TA is black. Like I thought that was just um, so wonderful and, and also just so tragically far. That is tragic. Did, how did people, like, how did people react to you about that? Did they talk to you about it? Were, were you? Um, I think people uh, wanted to, um, a lot of people, you know, people are 18 and they just thought it was cool that most people just thought it was cool that I was from South Africa and asked silly questions like right. what animals were in your backyard, which actually now seeing all the wildlife in my backyard, just in the Boston suburbs does actually not seem that silly, but there were no wild animals in my backyard. <laughs> um, but I would be able to say things to people like, oh yeah, there's, there's a, there's a, once was a hippopotamus in our swimming pool and people were like, oh, really? And I was like, no, not really. You know, I've only ever right. seen a hippopotamus in a game reserve. <laughs> um, but also, you know, some people um, try to suss out um, kind of where I was as a white South African um, about apartheid, and I was able to reassure them pretty quickly. I was pretty self-conscious about it um, and probably defensive or like sort of proactively defensive about it with some people. Um, I definitely remember using my South African passport to travel into the U.S. years later, even until I became a citizen and a little bit being like clamming up a little bit um, at the border about it and, and, and being a little bit embarrassed That's about it. I'm super fascinated by the 3D printing industry. And I, a couple of years ago, I remember seeing a lot of media coverage about how 3D printing was was going to revolutionize. Uh, you know, manufacturing and, and accessibility for people to make their own stuff at home. 
access for people to make their own stuff at home. I haven't seen that last part translate much. I did see a Vice documentary recently about like folks 3D printing guns at home, but I haven't like I don't walk into people's homes and see 3D printers the way I think maybe the media was suggesting it would be a few years ago. Why do you think that's so? And do you think we'll ever get to that point? So um, I'm going to channel um, our uh, founder, CEO, Max, for a minute. Um, so when he founded the company, um, people were talking about everybody making um, stuff at home. And he was just like, yeah, no, we're, 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 not, we're not even anywhere close to that. Um, and I don't really think people want to make stuff for themselves at home other than like little figurines and hobbyist type things. Um you know, you don't really want to make your own fork, like somebody's going to be able to make it for you um, much better. And so that is not um, that is not what he sort of envisioned for the company. And actually, I don't know if you guys have seen the documentary Print the Legend. Um, that was sort of a documentary of early days, form labs um, and early days MakerBot. MakerBot was much was even less expensive than form labs and was the like people are going to be printing stuff at home company. And we were the, no, this is a professional 3d printer. It doesn't have to be industrial, but it still has to be professional. Um, and, um, so even back then, um, Max wasn't on board with it being around 3d printers more now, of course, working with them. Um, I completely understand now it's, it's, it's a little bit, it's, it's not messy if you're using it for professional purposes, but it's kind of messy for the home. Like I said, there's all these post-processing steps. Um, it it takes, you know, a few hours to print a thing, uh, a little thing. And, um, you know, we're not that patient. It's not this like, it's not printing like you're printing, you know, um, a 10-page paper on your HP printer. Um, and, um, and the materials, you know, you know, people ask us if our materials are food safe and things like that. You know, you have to be really careful about that stuff. I think a lot of times people think about printing stuff for their kitchen um, for some reason. I guess maybe that's where we live most of our lives. So I, I think for, for those reasons, it's it's both really easy to print stuff and it's also not that easy you know, at the same time. And like the people at KitchenAid need to be making the KitchenAid and they could be using a 3D printer to make the parts and they do, to make right? the stand yeah. mixer. Right. But like, why would I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know. Maybe there is a, a world in which we're printing stuff at home, but I, I well, there, but, but there are some sure. products like, like there are some things that like would make sense to print it on your own. Right. Like, I mean, if I had a 3D printer and I could just print stuff that I buy at Ikea, like that just makes sense to me. But I think the point of like time, yeah, and like I don't know what the cost is of all of that. Um, I don't know, but I do know for sure that, that a few years ago, like it was being framed as like we're gonna have 3D printers in our homes, and when I drop a yeah. cup, I'm just gonna make one, and like that <laughs> didn't pan out. And I guess yeah. like the realities of the printing process, um, sort of that was sort of the top of the hype curve. Uh, we like to say, and now we're kind of getting into we're in sort of the realistic stage of uh, of the curve. How was it for you, Shirley, going from uh, Catalan Demandware, software-focused companies? You know, Demandware was was acquired by Salesforce and eventually became, I think, Commerce Cloud, so e-commerce software. Going to Formlabs is very different. 
it was it was it it was very different and i knew it was going to be different which is you know why i was so excited to join um one of the things i was really excited about is getting back to my ip roots so when i was at a law firm most of the cases um i worked on as a litigator were patent cases and so getting back to a company that for whom patents were really important um was and i think a lot of that is because of the hardware um was very exciting and i sort of wrapped my head around that part pretty well um i knew there were going to be surprises that i just didn't understand because i was not in that world and and they have been um and in some you know in some interesting ways so for example um our bet the company contracts just look different right our contract manufacturers those are that's a bet the company contract our logistics providers those are bet the company um contracts and they and you have to start thinking about very different things than you would for negotiating your salesforce agreement or your demandware agreement like the demandware agreement was a bet the company agreement for a lot of the demandware customers but the things that they had to think about are different than for logistics or for um for contract manufacturing um so and then the other and then the other piece is the regulatory piece right um a couple a few of our products are actually um considered medical devices uh because they are we make resins um that are used like i said in the dental space um and so they're not you know they're class 1 devices in the in the medical device space that's like you know that's the baby world but just again understanding that and understanding how that works was something that um i needed to learn about and then just the general chemical regulations worldwide of what goes into those resins and the safety regulations on actually making um a hardware device like that little ul on the back of everything electronic that you buy that's not um that's not technically a regulation but it may as well be given that you need to have it to be able to sell the product and so sort of understanding um you know not at a detailed level right we have like technologists for that but understanding that framework uh became important in a way that um you know some was something i just didn't know anything about before i got to form labs what's different about a bet the bet the company contract in form labs versus you know maybe some other partnership um i think that it's uh i i think that those two things that i mentioned is about the company contracts like the contract manufacturer and the logistics it's like you can design the best product and have it prototyped and know that it works great um in your office but if you can't those two things are necessary to actually get you know one cent of revenue um and so it just like doesn't even get off the ground it's not like oh this is a big risk like if this fails like this is going to be a problem it's like if this fails there is nothing to sell like if we cannot get this to the customer there is nothing to sell um so um this this sort of that element um to it and much harder to like it is hard to replace um you know a big piece of software in your um in your stack um but i think it's even harder to replace a um a contract manufacturer 
Yeah. You know, in a, in a quick way, you can do it. Um, but it's not, it's like something you need to really plan for probably even more. Pedro, how did you deal with that at Oracle? You, you ran a commercial legal team at Oracle. I'm curious, like from the side of a massive company that is selling software to sometimes governments or really large backbone type software agreements, how do you navigate what Shirley's talking about? Like for that small company or, or whatever, Oracle software could be a big piece of what they're doing. Like that, I guess that negotiation with somebody where it's way more important to them. It's important to you too. It's probably large dollar value, but it's also like critical to their business. I see what you mean. I see yeah. what you mean. Um, you know, it's, 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 you know, I did this at Salesforce too. And, and so like, I, I think if you asked Oracle or Salesforce, you know, the, the, the line answer would be like every customer is as important as the other, but you know, the, the realities are that like, you know, depending on the sizes of transactions and, and the amount of business being done between companies, like more flexibility, more negotiation and more attention gets paid to the deals. Right. Um, whereas something like at Oracle specifically, where something would be like critical infra for our customer, but not necessarily a critical commercial deal for us. I think customers still got um, a, a pretty significant level of attention if they asked for it, Andy. And I think that was the key. Like if you just went on our website and signed up for database as a service, like that's the amount of attention you're going to get, right? Like the, like that's fine. Um, but if you're a small player, especially if you've got high growth potential and you just need a little bit of a more curated experience, not just during the negotiation process, but during the like SaaS rollout process, you know, it, it is my experience that Oracle uh, as a core company was very willing to give that energy to a small customer if it made sense for both sides. Um, I think Salesforce was sort of the same thing, like on just a pure legal resources administration question, like clearly, Andy, like I had to make <laughs> decisions yeah. about like what deals my team would support versus what deals we would take a, a more reactive or no support strategy. But a lot of that signal didn't come from within legal. It came from the business, right? Like, I, I remember very vividly working on some really small transactions that ended up being like multiple months long negotiations simply because like while the optics of the transaction didn't read like big, big deal dollars, like the potential for the transaction growing into something much more significant was there and the business was prioritizing it. So I think the answer to your question is we took our signals from the business side um and and built our support plan for transactions that way and it didn't really matter their size just more what the business was telling us was more important but i'm sure that you had toggles right you were like okay well we're willing to go up to this amount in sla for somebody who's getting yeah really yeah we did we did like we had a we had a playbook and like yeah. like the but the but the, like i hate playbooks first of all i think they're <laughs> they, they can be traps right because it takes away sort of like legal creativity um but i do think they're useful in this way Here's a general framework for how to think about deals in proportion to their size. Excuse me. Think about terms in proportion to deal size. Um, but providing such a playbook in the context of you still have discretion to negotiate differently if the deal calls for it or if there's a specific circumstance in the transaction that makes it so, you know, at Oracle and Salesforce, we, we had a whole escalation process for that. Right. So, like, yeah. you might have a small deal. That's being held up because the playbook says X, but the customer's asking for Y. But in the context of that deal, Y makes a lot of sense. You just escalate it, right? And you you seek for uh, you, yeah. you know a, an approval both on the business side and on the legal side. And we had those escalation processes built in. 
so that um, people working specific deals could still get curated treatment, even if um, it wasn't like some massive deal where like it's, you know, just make it happen, negotiate everything was the mandate. I also think that when you negotiate something like at Demandware, when I was negotiating um, agreements that were maybe not such a big deal for Demandware, but a really big deal for um, an online seller, right? Like this was going to be their main like their main channel. This was how they were going to sell most of their stuff um, for some of them. And um, I mean, Andy, I'm sure you've had this a lot um, in your time as well, just negotiating with empathy, um, understanding, you know, why this really matters to the other side, taking it as flattery for your product versus like, you know, like being defensive and seeing it as kind of aggression. Of course, like, there needs to be a nice person on the other side. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, you know, when people just said, look, this is really, this is really important to me. Like if your site goes down, I don't sell anything that day. Um, you know, you, you feel much more for that lawyer trying to get a good deal for their client. Um, as opposed to say, you know, as opposed to just, you know, beating their chest. Empathy is totally underrated. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's highly underrated. Like, Sales, Pedro, your point about Salesforce and, and Shirley, it sounds like Demandware and Salesforce, who eventually bought Demandware, are a, a good match because yeah. my experience has been specifically with Salesforce that it's easier to get Salesforce to listen to you with empathy than other companies. Um, Oracle, I was lucky I knew Pedro, but outside <laughs> of outside of that... Other companies, it can be really difficult without the privilege of relationships inside that company to be able to get someone to even listen to you, much less change something. So I think like the empathy piece is really, really important. And I and I don't I hope we can figure out ways for companies to get away from the strictures of playbooks, even though like, I know they have to have them in process and everything. They're big companies and you've got to have a way to do things. But that empathy piece is really important. And as GCs and lawyers who like hire people and, and uh, talk to like younger lawyers that are um, trying to pick up contract negotiations and, and stuff, it's really, and it's I not think something everyone empathy, talks about enough. Evoking empathy from the person on the other side is an underrated skill. Yeah. I think it's hard to get another person on a uh, person on the other side at some companies though. Um, like, I don't want to call any companies out, but there are some that definitely like you don't have unless you want to invoke empathy with an AI or a terms of service, you're not yeah. going to you're not going to get yeah. a lot of human contact. And look, some of that is a function of scale. I get it. Um, you know, you're doing if you're doing 100,000 deals a month, you're not going to be able to have 100,000 human beings working on those deals. And and, 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 and that makes a lot of sense. Honestly, um, however, yeah, yeah I, I, but, but I, do think that, like, I can't negotiate for every five thousand dollar, you know, printer. It's just right. Exactly. Exactly. Like, you, you, exactly. Like you can't do business that way. And so like, there's a tension between like the need for standard operating procedures and for like, like the, like the, I don't know what the right word is, but like the, the proceduralization of scale, I, I get it. Um, But to the point you guys are both making about empathy, like there's no faster way to make something happen than to like add a human touch to it. And, you know, I don't think we're going to solve for all deal transacting through like AI bots and, <laughs> um and like click throughs right like i just don't think that's the future of all business even though i think a lot of sales uh operations would love that right it's like close the sale and then just point the customer to a click through 
Like that, that is what I think that is like the dream of every salesperson. I just don't think that's a reality where not in my lifetime that we're going to get. Well, it's the dream of every salesperson until the customer says no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then their dream is for you to review like somebody else's like 20 page contract. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I think we have to wrap up, but thanks. Uh, thanks for chatting. We, we had an outline. We touched on some of it, which is good. It means it was a, a good show. So appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Thanks guys. Yeah. Um, lovely to speak with you and happy new year. Yeah, likewise. you too, Shirley. Thanks. Bye. All right. See ya.